Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles again to Exodus chapter 34 there. Put that passage before our eyes once more. Uh, I got to say, uh, I'm one of the kind of first generations, uh, when, as far as my generation goes, uh, that you know, had cell phones at a fairly young age. And I remember being so excited to get my first, uh, not just my first cell phone, but eventually my first iPhone and how exciting that was. And then, you know, as time has gone on, I think that cell phones are really kind of the bane of my existence. I, I do not like cell phones anymore. I, I still remember the day we had a landline growing up. Um, and I remember the days where somebody called you. You could go upwards of, I don't know, 24 hours without returning their call before they would start to suspect that you're ignoring them. And now it's like you get a text message, and especially if they notice you read it, right, if you had read receipts on. Uh, if they notice that you read it, then you're getting a text back like 30 minutes later, hello, question mark, and they're, they're already on your case. Um, but the people I really feel sorry for, because I was in the battlefield for, for a time, and I, I understand what you're, uh, what you're going through, is cell phones and dating, right? Like, you don't realize, uh, you, you, you folks that didn't have cell phones, like 75% of the battlefield when it comes to dating, it, it's over text messaging, and, and maybe if you did long distance when, you, uh, you know, you were dating, then maybe you uh, were expected to write, you know, a love letter once a week or something like that. But these young people, every day, right, they're, they're crafting these little love letters, hundreds of them, to send back and forth. And it's got to be perfectly worded. It's got to say, I like you, but not in a creepy way. And the tone's got to be just right. You know, do I put, uh, do I put you know, the, the emoji with blushing cheeks or just the regular smiling emoji? And it's just very stressful. And there's nothing worse, right, than when you send that text message off to the girl you like or to the boy you like, and you notice they read it, and then you get the dreaded three bubbles, right? And then that's exciting because that says they're typing, they're responding, but then all of a sudden the three bubbles, they just go away and you don't hear anything back from them. And you're wondering, did I say something wrong? Did it, you know, does, do they think I'm creepy? I don't know. And, and we start to uh, become insecure, right? And this even happens in relationships, and you might think that that's, uh, that's pretty unhealthy. And that's often, you know, when we lose that trust and we begin to doubt that relationship, that's when we become anxious and uh, doubtful and we're prone to do something wrong. And you say that's unhealthy, but that is the reality of what people are facing with their cell phones these days. But really, it's not all that different than how we often approach our relationship with God. Uh, you know, we, we experience the same thing in our prayers when we don't see the immediacy of, of response that we would like to see in our prayers. Uh, perhaps we don't feel his presence in our life as powerfully as, as we wish. Um, it's things like that that cause us to doubt his faithfulness towards us, isn't it? And in a relationship, again, that's where someone might say or do something foolish and so it's the same thing with God. When we doubt his faithfulness, that's when we're prone to messing up. That's when we're prone uh, to making a fool of ourselves. Um, we say, you aren't faithful to me, God, therefore, why should I be faithful to you? But God, when he describes himself, there are two things that he says he is abounding in. The first one we looked at already this morning, he says, I'm, I'm abounding in steadfast love. That means it's numerous, it's, 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 uh, it's spilling over, if you will. It's in abundance. But he also says that he is abounding in faithfulness. 
And so that's the word that we're looking at where the Lord passed before Moses and he describes himself as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Uh, the word that he uses there is, is emet, and it's, uh, it's described as faithfulness, reliability, trustworthiness, or a state or condition of being dependable and loyal to a person or standard. It's sometimes translated as true or, or truth, certain, it's sure, that which conforms to reality and is so certain to not be false. Some of your versions say that he's abounding in steadfast love and truth. But when this idea, it's, it's always, you see, it, it's always paired. It's often paired with his hesed, with his steadfast love. Those two ideas are always together, it seems like, where God describes himself as being full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And so uh, it's interesting just to see how this word is used throughout the text. You remember uh, Abraham's servant, um, when he's going to find a wife for Isaac, and he prays before he does that, and then uh, he eventually finds Rebekah, and it says, as he's recounting that story, that he knelt low, worshiped the Lord, blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who guided me on the emet, right? The, the right way, the reliable way to take the granddaughter of my master's brothers for his son. Uh, in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of emet, truth, accurately. In other ways, you could describe his words as that which can be depended on, right? That, that's really how we define truth. Is it something that can universally be depended on? If, you know, say that uh, somebody, that if they jump off the top of a skyscraper, they're going to die. That's, gonna be, that's not something that's subjective, right? That's something that we can all universally depend on. And so these are how his words are described in the book of Ecclesiastes. They are words of truth. They are words of Met. Uh, Jesus describes his words similarly. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What is he saying? He's saying that my words are reliable. It's like if you're going to build a house, they're so reliable that it's like building your house on a solid rock. And to not build your, your life on his words, it's like building a house on a foundation of sand, right? He says his words are reliable, and the reason they are reliable is because they're true. And so when God, and we read himself, describe himself as abounding in a met, we want to understand that, yes, he's talking about his words, but he's actually talking about more than his words. The reason his words are true is because they're proceeding from him who is true. Jesus doesn't say, I preach truth. He says, I am the truth, right? That, that means he preaches truth, but that means that he himself is the standard and definition of truth. And so just like his words, God is true. He is reliable, or as your, word, or as your Bible say, many of them translate it, that he is faithful. You know, I think the first place that we see this and where it's so obvious is in nature, isn't it? And I could, you know, talk about this for hours, but just when you look at how the earth orbits the sun, right? It said, I looked this up and it said that the earth orbits the sun at 67,000 miles 
or uh, 18.5 miles per second. So 60,000 miles per hour or 18 and a half miles per second. Oh, we just went another 20 miles. Oh, there's another 20 miles, right? But you keep zooming out and it gets more and more awe-inspiring because we're uh, in, in a solar system and we're orbiting the Milky Way galaxy at 140 miles per second. So all these planets and uh, everything else in our solar system, while we're orbiting the sun, the entire solar system is orbiting the Milky Way at 140 miles per second. There's another 140 miles. There's another 140 miles. But let's zoom out a little bit further. Uh, you look at our galaxy, right? Our galaxy, the entire Milky Way galaxy, is moving at a rate of 25 miles per second. Well, that's measly compared to what we just looked at, right? But you keep zooming out, right? And, and you keep going with this. And we're in what's called a galaxy cluster. And there's all these other clusters of galaxies. And our galaxy cluster is moving at a rate of 375 miles per second. Is your head spinning yet? That's well, a really good thing that that whole, uh, you know, Big Bang, you know, just got here randomly worked out, isn't it? Because we're just hurling from, from, you know, throughout space and things just keep humming and boy, aren't we lucky. No. Bible paints a very different picture when uh, the authors reflect on, on the universe, on the heavens, on the stars, on the sea. Uh, it says the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, he remains faithful forever. We sing a song, great is thy faithfulness. But we often struggle. We see this as a logical point. I think we often, uh, in spite of that, struggle to see his faithfulness on an intimate level. We often struggle to see it in our own lives, and we accuse God of breaking promises. And we've got to realize that when we accuse God, there's, there's a, ca a caveat here. That when God says that he's faithful, that doesn't mean that he's faithful to the purposes of Sambre. It doesn't mean that he's faithful to what Sambre wants on a daily basis. And so uh, as much as we wish that were true, the fact is every time we accuse God of breaking a promise, we either haven't given it enough time or we're charging him with breaking a promise he never made. But here's the good news. When it comes to God's purpose... His purpose actually includes us, and in fact, his purposes are much better than any purpose we could imagine for ourselves. We read in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, to be holy and blameless and loved before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavishes on us in the beloved one. We are part of God's purpose. That what God wanted at the beginning and even before the foundations of the earth is to make a creation that he could be in a relationship with, that he could have, that he could love, that he could spend eternity with. And so we are part of his purposes, but on a daily basis, we find that that doesn't mean that he has to be faithful to what I want on any given day. And so really what it boils down to is, do I have faith in his faithfulness? I want you to think about this question, and I'm not sure that I have an outright answer to it, but I want you to ask yourself, do you think that all sin is simply the result of our failure to trust God's faithfulness. 
Another way you could translate faithfulness is trustworthy. In fact, it's, that same word is translated that way from, from time to time. Maybe if we make the exception of sins of ignorance, when we know what to do, when we know what God's word is and how it applies to our situation, I would suggest to you that every time we sin in those scenarios, it's because we are failing to trust the faithfulness or trustworthiness of God. I think we see this throughout the entire Bible, and we'll look at some more examples here. But you look at even the very first sin with Adam and Eve in the garden. Did they know what God's word was? Did they know what the commandment was? Yeah, Eve recites it to the serpent. But what does the serpent say? You think you'll die? No, you'll certainly not die. Serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Eve was faced with a choice, wasn't she? Who am I going to trust? Isn't that what Satan's trying to do? He's trying to, to get her not to trust God. Trying to get her to think that what God said is somehow untrue. Trying to get her to think that, that God has it out for her, that somehow God is threatened by her is almost how he sets this up, doesn't he? Who is Eve going to trust? We know who she ended up trusting. She took from that tree and she ate of it. Whom did she fail to put her trust in? God. But we see it also in the Exodus generation as we've already brought out. Um, we looked at this last night. But you see the, the Israelites, uh, they just constantly doubted God. They, they doubted God at the Red Sea, but God delivered them from that moment. They complained when they lacked food, God gave them food. They complained about water, God gave them water. But then you finally get to Numbers, and they are scared to enter into that promised land. And it's at this point that I think God finally has had it. You know, they've just, God has given them every reason time and time again to trust him, to show that he is faithful, to show that he is worthy of their trust. And time and time again, they have refused to put their trust in him. And so this is what God says when the spies come back, right? You remember that story? And yeah, the land's good, but there's no way we can defeat these guys. There's giants in there, and they're just too scared to go in. And God says, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not emet, right? How long will they not trust in me, despite all the signs I have performed among them? We know that there's an exception to those spies, Joshua and Caleb. And we know that they said in Numbers 14, verse 7, to the entire Israelite community, the land we pass through and explore is, is an extremely good land. The Lord is pleased with us. He will bring us into his land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. They're saying, we can trust God. And yet, what does Israel do? They refuse. And that whole generation dies in the wilderness, except for two men. Joshua and Caleb, they entered the land of Canaan. The rest of Israel doesn't. You see, faith in his faithfulness will not only keep you from sin, but it is the only way that we enter the promised land. 
And so we all have to make a choice and ask ourselves on a daily basis, am I putting my faith, do I have faith in the fact that God is trustworthy? Am I trusting in his trustworthiness? And I think there are sometimes indications that we don't. Uh, For example, do I trust his commands? When I come across God's word and it offers a challenging teaching, maybe it's saying that the way I'm worshiping God isn't right. Or maybe it's saying that the way I'm living isn't right. Maybe it's challenging me and, uh, because I'm not being pure. Maybe it says something about, about drunkenness or some kind of sin that I'm currently engaging in. That we say it feels good though. Do we trust that God gives those commands for reasons? That it's more than just raining on our parades. That he actually has our, our good in mind when he gives these commands. That they are protective that there will be a, a reward for us if we trust in what he's say, saying. Uh, do we trust his commands? Um, do I complain and grumble often? Uh, the moment the tiniest little thing goes wrong, is that the moment that I say, oh, God's out to get me. Of course it's me. Why is this happening to me? You know, I, I look at God, and he had issue with Israel. But isn't it interesting, the types of things they grumbled about, I think, are far more serious than the things that I often grumble about. We've got to cut them some slack there, right? I'm not being chased by an army of Egyptians with nothing but a sea in front of me. Uh, I'm not in the desert without any water. I'm not in a desert without any food. But God even took issue with them. I'm not faced with the choice of whether or not I'm going to go into a land and take on giants. But God took issue with them when they failed to trust him. And I complain about things that are so much smaller than that. In my trial... In in the days where things are are just not going my way, am I grumbling and complaining like the Israelites? Or am I saying, I'm just going to continue to trust God that he knows what he's doing more than I do? Furthermore, do hard times lead me to trust God less? Again, it's a similar point, but when things go wrong, is that the moment that I start blaming God? Is that the moment that I take up issue with God? You know, when you do a word study of this idea of faithfulness uh, as it's used in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, I'm struck by how many times this word is used in the context of God offering his protection. Um, in, In Psalm chapter 40 and verse 11, it says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. In Psalm 61, verse 7, it says, May he be enthroned forever before God, talking about God's anointed one, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. In Psalm 91, in verse 4, it says, He will cover you with his feathers. You will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. All those verses imply one thing to me. That you don't need somebody watching over you. You don't need protection. You don't need a shield unless there's going to be problems coming our way. God doesn't promise that we'll never encounter problems. What he does promise is that he will be with us in our problems. That he will carry us through so long as we continue to trust in him. He will take us safely through to the other side. Last one. Are my fears keeping me from obeying God. Maybe it's a fear of, of getting help, getting help that would help me conquer a sin in my life or addressing the sins in my life. 
Maybe it's fear of, uh, of doing things that God commands me to do, like practicing hospitality and having strangers into my home, but I'm not really a people person and I have social anxiety. Are those things that stop me from doing what God wants me to do? Or when it comes to evangelism and sharing God's word, are we so afraid of how people will react that we just we clam up and we just say, I'm not going to do it anyways? These are instances where maybe we are failing to trust in God's trustworthiness. But we know that we all fall short. I certainly don't stand before you this morning having practiced perfect trust in God's trustworthiness. But there is somebody who did. And of course, that's Jesus. He's the only man that ever showed us what it looks like to have a perfect, unwavering trust in God. Let me tell you, we should be so thankful that he did, because basically what Jesus did for us by trusting God in every single one of his circumstances is that he revealed to us to just what extent we can trust God, didn't he? Jesus had faith in his Father's faithfulness, even when it meant he had to die. And you recall this passage, and, uh, and Jesus quotes this in Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, where uh, the last thing Jesus says, he's trusting God with his last breath. He calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. And it says, saying this, he breathed his last. We know what happens next. It's a few short days later, Jesus was risen from the dead. Do you realize that if not for the resurrection, we may still have reason to wonder just how faithful God is. Certainly the Pharisees and Sadducees had debates over this. Is there a resurrection? What happens after you die? These were questions that were unsettled for them in their day. Thanks to Jesus and his willingness to obey God even unto death, he shows us that God is faithful even in death. That his faithfulness extends past the realm of the living into the realm of the dead. Jesus shows us to what extent God can be trusted. I would tell you that you, Christian, you can do the same for others. If God never allowed you to encounter hard times, how would you make his faithfulness and his reliability known to others? So if Jesus trusted God, even up to his last breath, dying on the cross, then I want to speak to you young people. You can trust him. You can trust him when you become anxious over your future. Or when some girl or guy breaks your heart, or when you fail to meet your own lofty expectations. And and parents, you can trust him uh, when you fail your spouse or kids. Or when you're anxious about your child's future or when financial storms ensue, retired and elderly. I know there's nobody in this room that uh, falls under the category of elderly, but maybe one of us will make it there one day. Um, But I want to say you can trust him, even when the light of this life grows dim, knowing that you have a greater hope than any worldly future that lies ahead of a younger person. Because even as Jesus sat on the cross, the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 12 that there was joy before him. There's joy before you. But Jesus, we also know, was more than a man. He was also God. 
And so he's not just an example of how man should and can trust the faithfulness of God, but he is an example of the faithfulness of God himself. He is so faithful to us that he came here and he died for us. I love Psalm 31, verse 5. Again, this is what Jesus quotes when he's on the cross, but the rest of that verse he leaves out. You go and you turn to it, and this is the verse Jesus directs our attention to when he says these words. He says, you have redeemed me, Lord, faithful God, and met God. Nowhere do we see the trustworthiness of God than we do in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I want to finish by reading Psalm 89 and verse 1. That psalm starts off by saying, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. God has made his faithfulness known to us. Are we making his faithfulness known to others? Let's finish with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the faithfulness uh, that you've shown towards us, and we're thankful for the evidence of your faithfulness. Uh, That is your son, Jesus. We know that even when facing death, we can face death with confidence, seeing that Jesus conquered death, and he promises that we can conquer death if we simply take up our cross and trust him. God, we know that you are trustworthy, and help us to grow in our faith when it comes to your trustworthiness. We pray all these things, and in Jesus' name, 